Good morning. Steelers coach Tom, Mike Tomlin uh, was asked about his Christian faith, and he said, football is what we do. It's not who we are. It's our job. It's our business. We're all passionate about it. But faith in Christ keeps us and keeps it in perspective. And the Green Bay Packers quarterback, uh, sometimes called the leader of the pack, only wants to be the leader of God's pack as it relates to influencing others for Christ. Aaron Rodgers says, I just try to follow Jesus' example, leading by example. So there you have it, the head coach of uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers and the starting quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. So who's going to win? Maybe it'll depend on the, on the testimony or something, you know? Which had the better testimony? <laughs> well, I, am, uh, I'm, I just want to be, go on record as saying I am hopeful that your team wins. <laughs> Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. But when you look at verses 1 through 7, you quickly realize that this doesn't begin at verse 1. It begins at chapter 2, verse 25. Or at least they're meant to be read as one piece. So we're going to start with chapter 2, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said from the fruit of the trees of the garden? Excuse me. Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall surely not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves Loin coverings. What is sin? In Berkeley, 1971, my first year of college, 
And my closest friend was attending UC Berkeley. I wasn't. I didn't have the grades. But I was there in Berkeley, and it was late, so late that it was actually early in the morning, and we were discussing the meaning of life kind of questions. And Tom asked me, what is sin? Here's the short answer. Sin is doing wrong. Doing what is wrong. Now, the word sin identifies a kind of wrong in both the Old and the New Testament. The very word sin in English, S-I-N, you find it in your English translation in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And both the Old Testament word, which is Hebrew, and the New Testament word, which is Greek, both refer to missing the mark or missing the target or missing the way. Something to that effect. In fact, in Judges chapter 20, verse 16, it tells about an army of men, and there are 700 who are left-handed, and they're so skilled that they can hit a hair with their sling and not miss. And the word, and not miss, is the word that elsewhere in the Old Testament is translated sin. Or Romans chapter 3, verse 20, all have sinned, and then what does it say? Fall short. I remember even reading in Xenophon, the Anabasis, which is just, I mean, it's not Bible literature, that's Greek. Belongs to what we call classical Greek literature. And a general, a mercenary, a Greek mercenary general, threw an axe. Or he was riding his horse and a soldier threw his axe to hit the general. And it says he missed. It's the exact same word that Paul uses in Genesis 3.20. Exact same word when it says, all have sinned. <laughs> so, There are familiar words that identify wrong. Missing the mark. Another word is trespass. We find that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Trespass. I, you know, if I walk outside of town, out in the country, sometimes I come to a barbed wire fence or some kind of barrier, some kind of boundary, and there is a sign posted, no trespassing. It is saying, don't go beyond that line. Don't cross this fence. So we have those ideas, see? Hit the target, great. Miss the target, wrong. Stay on this side of the line, great. Cross that line, wrong. That's sin. But in 1971, when Tom asked, what is sin? He was not asking for a definition of right and wrong. In fact, both of us at the time were free thinkers, miles from our religious upbringing and heritage. His was Catholic. Mine was Baptist. And actually, he didn't even bring up the word sin. I brought it up. I just kind of plucked it out of my 
childhood memories. And I said something like, what about sin? And Tom paused. And then very seriously said, what is sin? And I knew immediately because of the context and the countenance of Tom and the, the, the direction of our line of questioning and discussion and where our lives were going that Tom's question, what is sin, was not a question at all. It was a protest. He wasn't asking me to define it. He was denying it. With a subtle question, he was denying it. People in normal conversation don't even use the word sin. As soon as I used the word sin, the Bible and God were in the discussion. We don't talk about sin unless we're talking about the Bible and God. And that was in the back of my mind. What about sin? And he said, what is sin? His question was so subtle, so disarming. It stumped me. It even paralyzed me. I didn't know what to say. You know, at that time in my life, I ignored God. I even rebelled against God. But I had never actually doubted the existence of God until then. That was 1971. Forty years ago. And forty years later, there are more Toms today than 1971. The question, what is sin, conceals a more important question. Follow me here for a moment. This is, I really wrestled with this this week. The question, what is sin, conceals a more important question. And that more important question is, what is good? In fact, if you do not know what good is, you cannot say what is wrong. You cannot say what is sin or what it is to trespass to fall short, to miss the mark. Tom wasn't questioning anybody's right to determine good. He was advocating it. Tom was challenging God's right to define good. God's goodness. And ultimately, God's existence. We need to personalize this. 
Do you have a clear picture of good? If you're fuzzy on what is good, you will have an impossible time answering what is sin. Now, you can memorize the 613 mitzvot, that is, commands, in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, in the Torah. 613 commands, just to begin. But wouldn't it be easier to have one command? You see, that's the situation in the garden. When we go back to Genesis 2 and 3, it's all good. I mean, I couldn't be more literal. It's all good. That's all there is, is good. In fact, in let's, let's look for a moment. Turn, and, turn to chapter 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there He put or placed the man He had formed. Now that's a very common use of the word put. Put is a very common word in English. Now let's look at verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him... So we're we're coming back to the subject of God creating a garden and putting him in the garden. And there's put again. Let's go back to verse 9. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. I just want you to note the order. Pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now back to verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. This this word put is not the same word put in verse 8. This word, when used of God, has the notion of rest and safety. It also is used of God putting something in the sense of dedicating it within His presence. So, when you read that word put there, it it kind of jumps out at you. And and then what does it go on to say? Now, this is the, the, you might say, well, why use this verse and not verse 8? Well, because here he's setting forth his purpose for putting man into the garden. He put him in there for rest and safety, in a sense, for the dedicated fellowship that he was to enjoy with God. And then what does it say right after that? It says, to cultivate and keep it. Now, what does keep it mean? Well, keep it is going to be informed by cultivate it. But what's interesting, and I I don't have the time to... There are some excellent Hebrew scholars that would translate this worship and obey. 
In fact, the notion here is that man doesn't have to work the garden. That's part of his curse to work the ground and doesn't occur until his banishment. There's really actually no literal object to, they supply the word it, but garden is masculine and this infinitive is feminine. To work it, it does not coincide with the garden. Some would take this as the absolute. So you might almost think of it as as service, as it's used, for example, in the synagogue, the same expression. And so maybe it would help your mind make the move to, from, from work if you think of service in a dedicated sense. So God puts him in the garden to keep him safe for his special fellowship. And there, the man is to worship and obey. And what's the very next word? Well, the very next word to man is God's command. And it is that he should not... Let's read it, in fact, together. Uh, Verse 16, the Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree, now that's very important, any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Now kind of keep that in mind, because that's the one command. I mean, these were great times, weren't they? I mean, it was all good. These were literally the good old days. And all they had to do was keep this one command, not 613. It's not dizzying as it is today where we're, you know, we've eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're in the business of determining good now. That's what Tom was arguing. Who has a right to tell me what's good? Who has a right to tell me that's not good, or that's wrong, or that's sin, or that's evil? Now look at, in this day, And the man and his wife were both naked. By the way, that's the word arom. In fact, it's plural in the passage right there, arumim. And the word crafty in description of the servant is arum. They're from the same root. You can look at the Hebrew letters, and even if you don't know Hebrew, you can see how similar they are. And one means naked, and one means subtle, crafty, clever. There are some uses in Proverbs that suggest foresight, prudence, insight. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And then you get to verse 3.1, now the serpent was more crafty. It really should read, crafty as none 
other of the beasts of the field. Because it's not as though some of the other beasts were not as crafty, but they were crafty too. No, he is the only one who's crafty. That's the point. He's crafty as none other of the beasts of the field. And they're all clearly, it says in verse 1, created of God. But this, the serpent, is crafty as none other. And that word crafty, what's the, what's the connection then? When you're reading, you see they were naked, arumim, and without shame. In other words, what? They're innocent. Maybe even naive. All they know is good. These are the good old days. And then verse 1, now the serpent was crafty. Arum. And I think we're to see a contrast as well as a connection between the subtlety of the serpent and the innocence, even dependence of the man and his wife on God. Now, the serpent only talks two times. And I've set it out here. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? We just read what God said. Did he say you shall not eat from any tree? No, he said, you shall surely eat from any tree of the garden. One exception. And the woman, to her credit, she says, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. Now, there's a lot of commentators who make quite a bit of the fact that she adds the words, or touch it. She's obviously been thinking about this even before the serpent and her conversation. In fact, maybe they've talked before. That's why they can get to the heart of the matter. Adam had to tell Eve what God's command was. I think she had it right. But what she's done is she's almost built a hedge around the law. Have you ever heard that expression? The Jews use it all the time. Build a hedge about the law. Well, what does that mean? Well, don't eat of the fruit. We build a hedge by don't even touch it. You can't eat it if you don't touch it. That's pretty good, we think. The Jews, they spent lifetimes in studying. We do this in the church too. It wasn't just the Pharisees. Uh, You are the temple of God. And because you're the temple, let me tell you how to keep the temple right and pure. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And pretty soon, we've lost sight of the good, (laughs) and we've got our eyes on all the don'ts. And then when somebody says, what is sin? You go, hmm, hmm. I'm perplexed. The snake plants doubt about the goodness of God. And here comes the punchline. You will not surely die. 
God said in verse 17, you will surely die. All that the serpent does is add one little word, not. They are identical. That's why I changed the wording here just a little bit from, uh, from the translation so you could see it when you compare it with verse 17. You will surely die now becomes you will not surely die. And God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. And so now, you see the serpent has planted this idea. Is God good? It's raised the question, is God good? That's all I know is God's goodness. But now, I'm wondering, is God keeping back the really good? Just on the other side of that boundary, just beyond my reach, God has the really good, and He's keeping it for Himself. He's depriving me of the really good. That's what's planted. That's what's insinuated. All of a sudden, what God said in verse 8, or what God made in verse 8, which was, Pleasing to the eye, all, every tree, pleasing to the eye, good to eat, in that order. Now, we're thinking, that's not so good. There's something gooder. Yeah, there's something gooder. And God is not sharing it. It calls into question the goodness of God. It raises doubt about God. And the other issue that the serpent insinuates is that if I eat of this gooder tree, see, if I eat of this, then I'll have what God is depriving me. More good. They are not even thinking about the evil. They're just thinking about the good. And isn't that the way we're drawn into any disobedience or into any situation when we say, God doesn't know good? Pretty fundamental stuff. The issue is, who gets to decide what is good? The irony here is that in the next verse, when the woman saw that the tree was good, you see that in verse 6? When the woman saw that the tree was good, who sees what is good in Genesis? God. Up until this point, six times in chapter 1, God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. Verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse... And then in verse 31, after everything's complete, he saw all that he had made, and it was indeed good. It was very good. But does God know what's good for you? 
The archetypal example of God's knowledge of what is good for you and for me is when he saw that man was alone and it, was, it wasn't evil, it was not good. And so Eve, the creation of woman, becomes a prime example that God wants good for you. And that is what we have experienced to this point of God, His goodness, and that He knows good. It's all good. But the doubt is God is not altogether good. And he's keeping back what is gooder than all the good he has already provided. And now Eve, these are key words, see? Eve saw that the tree was good to eat. When did we hear that before? Verse 9, every tree... The order, desirable to the sight, good to eat. And I put the words in there because they are reversed in verse 6. Eve turns the order on its head. In verse 6, not every tree, the tree, the tree that was out of bounds, that it was a trespass to eat of. That tree, she says, is good to eat. And then it says, a desire to her eyes, the tree was desirable to make her wise. And that is the issue. Who gets to decide what is good? She, like you and I, take the place of God in our lives of determining what is good. And in a sense, we take a second bite of the apple. It wasn't really, we don't know what kind of fruit it was. And bam! She took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her. It wasn't like he was out in the field or anything. He was right there. How quickly the transgression comes once the decision has been made. And what was the decision? I know good when I see it. (laughs) But you see, ironically, everything up to this point suggests just the opposite, that God is not keeping something from them. He's keeping something for them, namely the good. And once they eat, what do they know? This new knowledge that they, de- they desired. This no- new knowledge that they wanted. Well, it was that they were naked. And here's, this, here's the profound thing. Is that all they see now is not good, but nakedness, shame, and they even see differences in each other that they didn't see before. And they cover their differences. And they hide from God. And relationship 
is broken between them and broken between them and God. Here they wanted to be like God. That's what the snake promised. But the irony lies in the fact that in the creation they were already like God. They had been created in His image. They assumed they would enjoy the good once they decided what was good. But they really enjoyed no good. No good whatsoever. The good they saw, the good that they thought they would enjoy, was just the knowledge of their nakedness and shame. God and good go together. And the man and the wife are banished from the garden and they are kept from the tree of life. But God has provided another tree of life. The tree of life for you and me is the cross of Jesus Christ. That tree restores relationship with God and it's planted right in the middle of our sin, our orchard with trees of the knowledge of good and evil. And under every tree is a tom, but right in the middle, right there, is the tree of life, the cross of Jesus Christ. And it shows us the good. It restores relationship with God. It gives eternal life. It transforms us with the power and the promise that we are once again God's child. And it shows us the good. Jesus really had only one command. It really was only one command, two parts. He called it the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your soul, all of it, and all your might, and your neighbor as yourself. And that wasn't just in Jesus' teaching. It's across the New Testament. All of His disciples that have written, bring it to mind. Paul, and listen, instead of 613 commands or more, we need one command. And this is it. Love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. And Paul, talking about that, said, as did others, in keeping this command, you fulfill the whole law. Paul said in Romans 13.10, he says, love does no wrong to its neighbor. In other words, when you love, you can't commit sin. You can't do wrong. And the epitome of love is demonstrated by God. The more we love Him, the more we grow in His love. He who in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 and 16 is called love. God is love. The beautiful thing is, is that it's still pretty simple. We just need to know what the good is. What is good? It's love. Now philosophers will talk about good in terms of aesthetics or morality. But that's not the good that touches me. The good that touches me is the love 
of God. That's the good that touches me. That's the good of God at work. His love. And it's demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ. You may forget anything else I've talked about with respect to Genesis, but remember this. You define sin by knowing what is good. Just like the agent for the treasury department knows a counterfeit because he knows so well the authentic bill. Know the authentic good. God still defines good by who He is. And He loves you. And that tells you. I mean, He demonstrated it on the cross. That tells you and me. We don't need to doubt God's good. And His good is a good that is not just theoretical. It's a love that touches us. It's a demonstration of good in His love. This has been a production of Grace Community Church of Visalia. For more information, go to our website at www.gccvisalia.org or for more sermons, go to gccvisalia.org slash podcast.